0: This week's podcast is brought to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the Center for Congregational Health and to find the help you need in order to thrive in mission and ministry. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Church Starts Conversation. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship and interviews of people doing groundbreaking work of partnering together and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from church starters, pastors, and practitioners. This is Andy Hale. Our guest for this week's podcast is author of Jesus Feminist and Out of Sorts, a phenomenal writer and blogger, and a self-identified recovering know-it-all and social justice wannabe. Sarah Bessie has become a household name and voice box for many people of this generation speaking out about their faith. Before we get to our conversation with Sarah, I want to make you aware of a wonderful resource on cbf.net backslash General Assembly. If you missed out on this year's annual gathering in Atlanta, June 28th through the 30th, you missed out on a lot of wonderful workshops, worship services, the commissioning of our church starters, and Brian D. McLaren's keynote speech on Thursday night. If you want to find all of this stuff, Audio of the workshops, videos of the business session, videos of the worship services, you can visit cbf.net backslash journal assembly. Now on to our conversation with Sarah. I think one of the amazing things about your work is you've created a safe space for people who are examining their faith realistically, taking it apart, and reclaiming it in a life-giving way. Um, Your theological journey and writings have... for personally for me, have been a great deal. So I'm a big fan. So this is a, a great uh, opportunity for me today. But I do have one bone I have to pick with you. The Boston Bruins. Really?
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so North Carolina, we are huge Carolina Hurricanes fans. <laughs> that was the one part about your riding. I was Aww. like, mm, you know, this You're could also- be we all have our faults, I guess.
1: You're also you're all so precious, all the Carolines and Carolina <laughs> hurricane. But, you, that and the Predators. I'm I'm so deeply enjoying seeing all these expansion teams um, that we used to make fun of, right? Like remember when they when Gary Bettman announced all these, you know, teams starting kind of more in the mid 90s was when it really began, the expansions. And we were all like whatever these Americans are never going to get into hockey <laughs> and you all have proved us thoroughly wrong that I have just I've never been so happy to be wrong in my life because it has just been such a joy to watch all of these cities that we never expected to love hockey just embracing something that is so important to us and so I am I'm very very happy with it
0: well you and, want- uh,
1: yeah the Boston Bruins I um I grew up in Saskatchewan and um, we didn't have a, a local team back then. Even uh, the Winnipeg Jets were, were just barely around. The Edmonton Oilers just had come on into the NHL back in uh, at the beginning of the 80s. And my dad had grown up a Boston Bruins fan. And so that was always ours. It's a, it's a family legacy. I, I can't apologize for it for sure. <laughs> no, <I can't laughs> Even though it that. surprises people usually.
0: It could be worse. You could be a Capitals fan or a Penguins fan, but... Uh...
1: Oh Lord, or Montreal Canadiens fan—that would be yes. just the the worst. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, with that small, you know, side note, let's uh, let's jump into this uh, conversation. Um, this is a Out of Sorts is a fully transparent chronicle of of your faith journey and um, what you rediscovered or maybe uncovered the Jesus seen in the Gospels and not the Jesus presented um, within Western Christendom. And there's a magnificent quote, which sounds so silly to read one of your quotes when I can just have you say it. But there's a quote that comes from chapter seven. You um, talked about in the kingdom of God, we join the God of co-creation and work of a new earth. We love and we follow Jesus. We shape our lives into his and here and on earth as they would live among us. And, and you go on to talk about that we are not called to, to follow political parties and ideologies and nationalism and consumerism and so on. Tell us more about this process of how you—I don't know the word—rediscovered or uncovered um, this Christ again, seen in the Gospels and not seen within Western Christendom often.
1: Um, you know, it's definitely a bit of a, a bit of a long story. I um, I think that really, you know, at the point in my life when I really began to wrestle with the church, wrestle with um, with my faith, with what I, I really believed. Um, Uh, you know struggling with it to be perfectly honest and it was not just any one issue I think that anybody who walks through a season like that knows that there is there are a lot of things that are tangled up in sort of those thickets that we get caught in Um, but oftentimes the thing that catapults us or moves us across that threshold is uh, is something that is is really quite simple and usually it's something related to grief. Right There's something that we're grieving about. There's something else that has happened in our lives that even though all these things were there, they didn't become quite as, um, I don't know, unbearable, perhaps, until we kind of hit this, almost this crisis point or this liminal space where we begin to move into it. And so for me, um, I remember really strongly feeling like I simply couldn't even use the word Christian any longer, to describe myself, I just simply couldn't align myself with the, um, you know, the, the political will of oftentimes those labels of what they they meant to other people. Uh, feeling a lot of baggage around the word Christian, that I wasn't sure that I really could align myself with. But I remember thinking, I, I'm still really fascinated by Jesus. Hmm. And I'm just endlessly fascinated by Jesus. And so, you know, I began to call myself a follower of Jesus. And I, it means the same thing, but I needed maybe the space that it gave my soul, even though to some people it's just silly labels and semantics and whatever else. But I don't know that you can really necessarily um, help people by, uh, by mocking the space that oftentimes language would give them or mm-hmm. the identity that it gives them. And so for me, calling myself a follower of Jesus was it was a shift. But I remember, um, it sounds so funny now to say it, but I remember having this realization almost one day of, well, if I'm going to call myself a follower of Jesus, I should probably figure out what that means. <laughs> right? I should hmm. figure out who he is. And so that's the point, I think, when I began to realize I was a really good follower of churchianity, which is a term that Michael Spencer, who used to run a blog back in the, back in the day called um, Internet Monk, he was an amazing man before he passed away. And he coined this phrase, churchianity and i thought well i'm really good at that and that has burned me out and exhausted me and you know just eating my lunch i felt you know three times on a tuesday and so i ended up realizing i needed to uncover and discover who jesus was and so i started where most protestants start which is in the bible And, of course, I started my most charismatic start, which I'm charismatic. um, And that is sloppy and experiential and, you know, Mm -hmm. making sure that you feel it, right? And so... That was that was absolutely my story. And so I began in scripture and I remember reading the gospels for months and months and months, just over and over and over again, studying them, studying theology, studying about the life of Jesus, studying thinkers, studying naysayers, studying reading and learning and and wrestling and talking to people who walked with Jesus and talking to people who'd walked away from from Jesus. And, you know, and really wrestling with it to the point where, um, I was surprised by the Jesus I uncovered because it was so different than, I think, what I had been, um, what I had initially been introduced to about Jesus when I was a child, which is oftentimes, you know, a very sanitized version of who Jesus really is. You know, someone who's nice, someone who wants you to love people, you know, that kind of thing. Hmm. And I remember being shocked by Jesus and sometimes even being angry. You know, like, well, this doesn't seem right, or this doesn't make sense, or I don't understand what's happening here. And just the, um, the sheer force of who he was. And, and I remember, I want to say it was, you know, probably a year into this process, sitting at my kitchen table, and I was reading Luke uh, seven, 6, I think it was. It would have been the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm reading this over and over and over again, and I just got to this point, I remember slamming my Bible shut and looking up at my husband and saying, I would follow that guy. Mm-hmm. I would follow that guy. No wonder everybody dropped everything they had. No wonder they threw their nets. No wonder they threw their livelihoods. No wonder they left their towns. No wonder they left everything. And they followed that guy because I get it. And I would want to follow that guy. I would drop everything to follow this guy. And almost feeling this sense of, um, of both relief, but even of, of I never knew how incredibly lovely and beautiful and real and countercultural and honest and revolutionary he was. And then I was ruined (laughs) for life or anything else. It's just, I don't know that I'll ever get over it. Hmm. Um, And it really changed everything. I mean, and and I'm endlessly surprised by how Jesus will just turn everything in my life upside down. Um, and recenter and help me understand uh, almost everything help, and, and then that reintroduced me to a lot of other things like you know scripture or church or intentional community or you know whatever else I mean just it's it's endlessly an adventure for sure well
0: it's very it's very evident from your writing that everything now filters through um, through Jesus um, you know every the way you see church the way you see interaction with others even the way that you interact with people who, um, want to categorize you or people who might have a, a bit more of a, a different theological perspective. Um, I, it's really evident that you see those people. Uh, <laughs> you're, through,
1: being so, you're being so diplomatic right now. <laughs>
0: through the lens of Christ.
1: Well, you know, it's, I'm it's funny, you know, uh,
0: you talk about um, the tradition you come out of, um, which is, yeah. a, a, you know, a great conversation to have. I personally grew up in a uh, fundamentalist evangelical tradition um, and I've left that tradition and I'm not going back to that tradition. Part of that is I don't know what burning at the stake looks like nowadays um, since that's not necessarily legal, but I feel like, you know, my theological perspective on things would, would ultimately end in that place if I returned to the tradition. But you're, you're different. You, you've returned to the tradition that you came out of. Um, how did you come to this stance?
1: Um, you know, I didn't want to. I guess is the best, best possible, you know, and the most honest answer. Um, you know, I, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor talks about, um, in one of her books, Learning to Walk in the Dark, she talks about this term, solar Christians. And that really does sum up um, the type of Christianity that I uh, grew up in. Uh, and of course, I grew up in Canada uh and in the west and in uh, more of a post christian sort of context and so you know I, my parents were first generation believers uh, my grandparents never went to church my great grandparents were the last you know last ones to be bothered with christmas and easter and um and so for us i mean well, to be honest i think most people thought we joined a cult when we became christian <laughs> and so for us i mean we didn't know what we didn't know and oftentimes it was you know certainly an over-realized eschatology and very literal but it's a very sweet thing to look back on now from this this perspective and see just how um it saved us and how it changed everything for us and it's hard for me to characterize or or even um turn those people into caricatures when even even when there was maybe some sorrow, or there were some things that were done wrong, or there were things that I would do very differently now, um, the sincerity and the humility and the earnestness of everybody who was alongside of us at that time, however even wrong I may think they are now, um, you know, over certain points of doctrine or here and there, um, oh man, they just love the Lord, and they were a good way to grow up and a good way to start. Um, I feel really tender when I look back on all of the people that I have been throughout my life. Um, and sometimes I think that if we could offer just even, a, it, it's hard It's hard sometimes to offer the most grace to the things that are most close to us uh, and the things that we have grown out of um, because that's part of our story is that we've grown out of it. And so it's hard to to look back on with, with that measure of, of kindness and mercy and understanding and even compassion, uh, both on ourselves and on the people who were there with us. But when I walked away from all of that, um, because I felt like, you know, I can't sing these big victory songs and all these simple answers don't make sense for me. And, um, you know, the light and the certainty and the right answers and the easy answers just simply weren't, weren't working. There was no theology of suffering, for instance, um, or for grief or anything else like that. And, uh, you know, I left the church altogether. I didn't attend church for a number of years, uh, wasn't active in church for probably six or seven years. Um, well, my husband, of course, was a pastor and was studying to be, you know, going to seminary and planning on planning a church. So that wasn't awkward <laughs> 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 or difficult. So I'm sure that there's a lot of married people who, you know, can listen to, you know, a podcast like this. And oftentimes it's what they wonder, you know, how do you have a marriage when you're at polar opposites, oftentimes in your spiritual journeys, and my husband and I certainly walked that that journey. We've been married for uh, more than sixteen years now, and um, I think that when I walked away, I thought I'd never go back. Like, I really, I really never did. I mean, to me, I had been emancipated from it. I had, um, you know, I had so much more understanding. I was just so much wiser than all these people, right? <laughs> and, um, and even I, you know, became, I kind of joke now that I'm ecclesiastically promiscuous because I just have found so much of a home and life and goodness in so many other traditions and so many other tribes and so many other places. Um, one of the places that really threw a lifeline to me was the Anglican Church, um, the Anabaptist tradition was another one that meant a lot to me. The missional mo- church movement, um, which does transcend a lot of denominational uh, barriers and, um, and labels. And I thought for sure that these would be my home. You know, when I eventually returned to the church, I was like, well, of course I'm going to be here, right, in this, in this group. And yet it never really came together and just never really felt a release about it. Never never kind of clicked. Like, you know how when you're trying to close a lid on a jar and it just isn't lining up? It was like that Mm. every time I tried to do something different. Um, And I remember it was an Easter um, a number of years ago now. And my husband wanted to take our children to an Easter service. And I said, yes, of course, we can go to an Easter service. And we just picked one at a, that was um, very similar to how we grew up, you know, happy, clappy, low church, school gym, people waving flags kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everything I thought I'd grown out of, everything I thought I would never return to. And we walked in the doors with our children on that Easter Sunday, and I cried. And I cried and cried for the whole service. I think I cried for the first three months. They have not been able to get rid of me since. And it is not a perfect church, Um, There are oftentimes when you feel like you belong everywhere, you end up feeling like you really belong nowhere. And so that can sometimes be hard, but I love them with my whole heart and it is family and it's good. And it's what I know. And if there's anything that I, um, that jar lid clipped right into place, like this was just where I belong. This is where I needed to be. Um, and I'm even very committed to seeing, um, you know, the journeys continue, you know, no, nobody's stagnated any more than I have. And so while I was off doing and growing and changing, they were too, right? My tradition was. And so there's a lot of things that we've all learned and we've all grown over the years. Um, but I think that oftentimes it's um, like most really amazing journeys, whether you're talking about, you know, the Odyssey, or, uh, or you know your own church journey really the big journey is the the internal the inward one the spiritual journey and then you have new eyes to see even the places where you used to be let's let's
0: nestle in here for for a few minutes is that okay Um
1: Totally fine. I know I'm probably over talking a little bit. I'm not a very good purple uh, processor.
0: Oh no, no. no! I, pr- I, really I promise
1: way more than you need.
0: <laughs> CBF's audience would much rather to listen to you talk than actually have to hear my voice. They they have to hear it too often. So no, this is this is this is a conversation for for uh, for us to learn from you. Um, you know, you, you spoke on something, um, and and one of the things you did say that that really sticks out to me is that 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 connection, that click. You said that the family, and I think. I think that's such a huge element that's missing for many people in their understanding of the church. Um, We've been caught up in this consumerism of the church for too long. Um, You know, we we want the best worship, we want the best programs. You know, I don't know what the context looks like in in Canada. I'm sure it's very similar, but but really, people I'm finding the more um, as a church starter myself, um, as a person who's been in ministry for years, I'm seeing that people want that sense of familial connection. They want a sense of community. They want to connect and they might even be willing to put up a bad worship, whatever that means, um, or, you know, uh, bad programs because they feel a sense of belonging. They, they feel loved there. Um, but, but what is it that you found? What is it that causes people to, to take the theological journey they've gone through and to leave uh, because it is so, easy to leave the tradition and to find something else um, versus versus staying so so why, why do pe- what do you think people choose to leave versus choose to, to come back to nestle in as you have
1: you know that's a that's a really um, interesting question and, and this is where uh, oftentimes people who, um, who are apologists for their tradition or for being stickers, right, for for faithfulness, for staying put. I really like what I have to say, but this is where they usually get mad at me, because (laughs) I usually then at this point say, sometimes you need to leave. Mm. You do, right? And and I don't think that there's a, a right or a wrong answer here. I don't think that you can say across the board that you should never leave your church, and you should always stay in the tradition that you grew up in, and you should reform from within. You know what, if it is Um, you know, dangerous, if it's abusive, if it's a place that sucks the life out of you, if it simply just doesn't fit, then you know what? I think that there's release and freedom there. I think that sometimes we get a little bit too tribal, you know, about Mm. some of these things. And I think that's one of the things that really brings me a lot of joy um, in these, uh, in a lot of my work. It's very ecumenical in that it transcends um, so many different denominations and labels and barriers. You know, someone like me, who's, you know, a charismatic uh, you know vineyard person um, you know is with the free methodists and with Catholics and with um, Baptists and you know and across the board and, and you begin to see the larger story of what God's doing in the church and you begin to realize you know what almost very few people really care about labels anymore what they care about is belonging and and so sometimes there's a place where you belong and sometimes there simply isn't you know and so and this is where oftentimes I tip my cards on just how charismatic I am because I really <laughs> deeply believe in the intimate and active leading on, of the Holy Spirit in these decisions and so I don't think that it is something that I could come alongside someone and say you absolutely need to stay put in the tradition that God has you know placed you in and you know it is it is disloyal and wrong and disobedient for you to, you know what that's not how these things function and I, and I do not believe that that is the I, to me that's even the voice of an accuser hmm right, to try to pigeonhole people or make them do things that really their, their soul is even rebelling against. Um, I, I, you know, and some of this too is even connected to our ideas around, um, you know, God's will or God's, um, you know, quote unquote plan for our life. My husband uh, grew up in more of an evangelical context in the United States, and he often jokes about an, you know, evangelical hero complex, right, in terms of like, there's one path, for you to take. And if you stray off this path, you're doomed, right? You you've missed God's best for your life if you don't marry this person, if you don't go to this school, if you don't do, choose that job. And I think sometimes we love church going or the church that or the community that we are part of in with that where we think this is the only place where I could possibly thrive. You know what? And I think that God's generous and wide and welcoming and good. And so no matter where you end up, God's presence and blessing and love and provision and abundance would be present in that place. And so just as for me, I felt very called to remain in the tradition um, that I grew up in, that I feel very at home there, that I feel like it is the right fit for me, even you know, with imperfections or, or challenges. You know what, there could very well be someone else who would say, no, I absolutely needed to go and and set up camp with the Baptists, or I really needed to go and set up camp with the Anglicans, or I needed to go and do something that was completely different in order to find my way clear to hearing the voice of God, because there was too much baggage in this tradition that I had. Um, So I think that there's way more freedom than we realize. And oftentimes, it's more of an exercise in discernment and in following the Holy Spirit than it is in rulemaking or boundaries. Mm
0: -hmm. Way to bring in that third person, the Trinity. <laughs> no, I, and, and I don't. I don't want to lump you. I don't want to lump you into um, the same age bracket as me. But um, you know, Generation X and Millennials. Um, I think this is one of the beautiful markers of uh, these two generations. That, um, not to borrow phrases from Brian McLaren, but uh, we want a generous orthodoxy. You can
1: borrow from from Brian McLaren all day long. As far as <laughs> well, I'm concerned, I
0: would listen to him all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know Brian. Uh, Brian really, and uh, this this resource is it's quite old, but it still speaks for, for Brian's sake. That speaks still still to what we're dealing with now. That many in Generation X and Millennials, we we want to appreciate um, the different aspects of all different traditions and really have um, taken that and interwoven that not only in our faith journey but our our, our worship and faith practices. And it is difficult. It is difficult when there is a sense of tribalism in the church—that it's us versus them mentality and entrenchment. Um, so, yeah, those are you know situations that are difficult to say. You know, staying creates um, emotional baggage, spiritual baggage. Um, um, sometimes, if we don't realize it, we begin to project those things onto to God versus onto the people that are actually bringing that into our life.
1: Well, I, I think that too, you know, one of the things that um, that we begin to understand as we're walking through community and we're being involved in the community is you begin to understand like what are preferences and what are deal breakers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the points that are deal breakers would be different for every person. But for me, um, you know, for instance, one deal breaker is that, you know, we're very committed as a family to the full equality of men and women within the church. And so you know what? I cannot in good conscience bring my children up in a church that does not have women preaching, that does not have women fully empowered to lead. Um, and so to me, even if I grew up in a tradition that was like that, I mean, that to me it would be a deal breaker. Um, but there's other things that are just, you know, preferences, maybe this way of doing this or this, you know, this choice or this, you know, the, those kind of more secondary things. Um, and those things oftentimes drive it. I mean, sometimes we find ourselves... In a place where um, where we can be really generous, and then other times we find ourselves in places um, where it feels like almost um, an affront to the work of the Holy Spirit that has happened in us, or the things that are a deep priority to us. And then at that point, I almost feel like, well, you know what? Even there, it's hard to say. I remember I remember chatting with one lady who was a little bit older, and she was in a tradition that didn't ordain women, and she believed deeply in it, and she stayed. Right, she felt deeply committed to staying. Um, she stayed and ran for the elder board every year, mm. like fifteen years. <laughs> and every fifteen, you know, every year they would have the conversation, and they would, you know, which they would bring it around again. And she just, she was so patient and so good, and she was deeply committed to these people, and deeply committed to seeing the shift uh, happen for the generations that would come up behind her. Mm. You know, she had had an eye on legacy, um, and I just think that that took such faith and such um, commitment and such faithfulness. Um, And so I learned a lot from her for sure about even what we can put up with or what we're committed to or what we think about the long game.
0: Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult of where do you draw the line in the sand, theologically speaking, but understanding the things that you value the most, I think, I think that's good insight. Um, But one, one question I do have is as you have entered back into a tradition that uh, oftentimes you theologically wrestle with, um, and maybe I'm projecting that onto what I've read from you, but how, how does someone enter back into a tradition that maybe is not in the same theological place they are? How do you, how do you deal with those theological differences? How do you, uh, how do you stay committed in those communities?
1: Um, that is a good question. <sighs> Let me think about it for a second. Well, first of all, um, I think there's a lot more breadth than we realize um, within our churches or within our communities. Um, And I've realized that that that's not exclusive to my tradition, that that's pretty much across the board, that there's way more nuance and complexity and, um, you know, change oftentimes that's happening on the grassroots level within our churches or within our communities than we'd realize. And we're not as alone as we think. Mm. Um, and I think that that's probably one of the big, big gifts that people who are wrestling with their faith, who are asking very serious questions, who are pushing back against the tradition that, um, or the, you know, kind of prepackaged answers, perhaps, that they've been given by their tradition, um, oftentimes you just feel incredibly alone. Right? You wonder if you're the only person who's thinking these things. You wonder wonder if you're, you know, the only one who's asking. And I can absolutely guarantee you at this point in my life and all of these conversations and all of you, you are not alone. (laughs) You're not alone in the least. And in fact, there's a lot of people who are doing that. And probably they're sitting beside you at church who are, you know, who are having some of those same questions or pushbacks. Um, you know, for my husband and I, you know, we're really committed to our, our local church. We're committed to conversation. We're committed to, um, you know, even, uh, supporting and praying for our leadership, even in on points of disagreement, um, and, and really to conversation. I think that the big shift for us was stopping seeing it as an institution and beginning to see it as a family mm. and, wanting to stay with our family, wanting to stay with the people um, even when we disagree with them, wanting to understand them, wanting to love them well. Um, and even wanting to be a bridge builder, uh, I have felt very um, strongly committed to the idea of, of living a life of invitation as opposed to a closed door. And so even on those points when we disagree and, and, and even on the points where I'm pretty sure I'm right, <laughs> you know, you want to have a, an open hand and an invitation to it and, and an awareness to it and even leave some room for the Holy Spirit to surprise us. Um, sometimes the people who disagree with me on, on things can end up being some of my dearest friends and, uh, and most, you know, encouraging and and loving and, um, and committed life giving people. Um, I mean, honestly, if we need to have conformity, if we, if we're confusing conformity with unity, then we've missed it and so oftentimes i think that we're missing the diversity that we can have within our unity um you know by choosing to love one another well even in the midst of of some profound disagreements
0: Mm. well that's what tribalism does right tribalism tells us that there has to be two sides there has to be right or wrong Mm -hmm. there has to be black and white there's been um, an encouraging um, movement i've seen in uh, not just our church traditions within cbf but other uh, friends and colleagues that are outside of cbf tradition Um, of a return to the essentials of faith and, um, you know, what we see the apostle Nicene's creed and, um, and then allowing room for diversity and non-essential things. But I think the problem is that we, we have a tendency to draw the line of what is essential and non-essential in ways that aren't very gracious that have to do with personal opinions and agendas that we want to push. But if we can tend towards this side, yes, we can create a, a stronger and more diverse community by by being okay with not agreeing on everything. And um, I think that's one of the things that's um, encouraged me the most from your writing is that the way that um, it, you talk about being a recovering know-it-all and, and you put out words of caution and hope for those that haven't quite realized they need to recover from being a know-it-all. Um, there, <laughs> there's, a, there's a blurb you have from uh, some of your writing in January. Um, that really stuck out to me is you, you wrote uh, because within us there are multitudes there are nuances there is beauty there's redemption there's justice and laughter and community and goodness and intelligence and wisdom and knowledge and what I took from that is, is a call to see the beauty in others versus seeing someone to disagree with seeing someone uh, that we see as wrong um, so thank you for that.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, you know, I, I think that that's probably the biggest shift that we undergo is the shift away from fundamentalist thinking, right, to a more, a more welcoming or open and, and, and to me a more, um, you know, uh, Christ-rooted or Holy Spirit-breathed way of understanding one another. Oftentimes we think the real shift is the opinion. Right. Well, I used to think this about the atonement, but now I think this about the atonement, but I'm still just as much of a fundamentalist about how I think about <laughs> the atonement, even if what I think has shifted. And I think that that's the big uh, challenge that oftentimes people will face as they are going through these stages of a faith shift. Um, you know, the, uh, it will begin with maybe the facts, right, with, the, with doctrine, with theology, with positions, like you were, were talking about but if all we're doing is shifting our opinions then we're really not evolving right we're we're changing our mind on 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 some things and i think that that's an important step in the process but really what we're moving towards is away from fundamentalist thinking is away from this idea of Um, you know, I am so completely right that it's a sin to think differently than me. Um, You know, that it is, there's only a right and a wrong. There's only, you know, black and white. Um, And oftentimes people, when they make a shift in their opinions, are still have that seed of fundamentalism that um, is oftentimes very argumentative and tribal and uh, needing to prove other people wrong and needing even to other them, right? Right. Well, any, anybody but these people. And oftentimes we're hardest on the people who think the same things we thought up until like six seconds ago. <laughs> so, but the, the spirit of that fundamental extremism is really the thing that we're rooting out. Right. That's that's really the shift that the Holy Spirit has us on, is realizing that we're needing to move towards a, um, an, a spirit of not necessarily what your opinions are, although those may shift and change and certainly have for me. Um but really, about how we engage one another, how we see one another, how we bless one another, how we uh, perceive the uh, each of us being made in the image of God, mm. and uh, and being able to hold space for the differences and the nuances and the changes and, and understanding, you know, for one another. And so, so really, that's the journey we're on, even when we think it's about our, you know, well, I think this about this, and I think this about hell, and I think this about salvation, and you know, whatever else. That really, there's a there's a larger transition happening for all of us.
0: Um, all your work is great. And um, I, I know I've been impacted by it, but I, I wonder if you could share um, what's been the response that you've gotten from um, not just from the blog, Jesus Feminist, but out of sorts, what, what kind of stories have people come back to you with, with about your writing? Uh,
1: you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's been overwhelming in all the best possible ways. Um, I think because I'm someone who's not a typical, um, I'm certainly outside the usual power and influence and, and Christian leader narrative <laughs> that oftentimes exists. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, formally trained and, you know, I don't pastor a mega church and, you know, all those kinds of things. You know, I'm some happy, clappy mum from Western Canada who, you know, just loves Jesus and loves to write and is oftentimes writing about what I think and believe and know and even hope about God. Um, and so it's, I think I'm endlessly surprised by that. Um, but, you know, for instance, like with Jesus Feminist, when I wrote that book, uh, I think both my publisher and I thought that it would be, a, you know, kind of a, a book for a moment and then it would you know, just, it was, it was maybe a niche book, I suppose, is the best way to put it. And I've been endlessly surprised at how, not only how well it's sold, but how diverse of a group has found it and what it has meant for marriages and for churches and for universities and for people that even now, you know, five years after I wrote it, um, it is still doing work that I never could have imagined. And to be, uh, you know, out of sorts, is the same thing. Blogging is the same thing. Um, You know, I have, uh, I do a lot of uh, of teaching and and traveling and, and ministry now around. I'm endlessly aware of um, there's this passage that Paul talks about. I want to say it's in Thessalon in one of his letters to the uh, the church in Thessalonica where he says, God takes your 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 something, or your 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 small thing that you have to offer and makes it into His something. That's that's so much more than you ever could have imagined. And I feel like that's how writing has been for me. Um, anytime I hear from someone about how God has met them and changed them and healed them, uh, marriages being healed, you know, children being restored, people ending back, you know, re- reconciled to God, people becoming, um, you know, acquainted with God for the very first time, beginning their faith journey altogether, uh, experiencing healing, pursuing even things like therapy and counseling and, you know, getting involved in justice work, whatever else it is. I feel very much this profound sense of, um, gratitude that I got to participate in what the Holy Spirit was already doing in their life. I'm very aware that it wasn't anything to do with how, with me or what happened there. I feel very much like it's the coolest thing I got to participate in what God was already wanting to do and doing in their life. And, um, and that is entirely between them and God. And I just got to be a small part of what God was up to. And I think that that's pretty amazing. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, not to diss on mega church pastors, but I mean, the what's maybe I don't need to say this okay I will you know what is presented there
1: (laughs) I double dog dare you is is a faith
0: that's all together you know um and I'm not I'm not questioning um the truth in books like that but you know um speaking of faith in the authentic and vulnerable way you did is much different than speaking of faith when you're making six figures and, you know, writing sermons. And that's what you pretty much do during the week. And so there's something to be said about why your book has spoken to so many people, because it is a book of authenticity. It is a book of a genuine journey. While people might not say, I I can, I'm identical to your journey. They can say, um, you're speaking about things that I've wrestled with and maybe haven't put into words or maybe haven't been allowed to put into words and you've given me uh, the space for that. Um, which which is another so thing. To
1: hear that. That yeah. may, you know, it means a lot to me to hear that and to know
0: that. Well, now you just got to pastor a mega church and then, you know, you can get that five, six book deal, <laughs> I guess. I think everybody knows that that
1: would not be a good idea. <laughs> Well, you know, I remember one time when my husband and I were beginning to start church planting, um, and we ended up walking away from that process and kind of deciding to, you know, rediscover a, a different way to um, to build up the church and, you know, to participate in that. And I remember someone saying it's really hard to make people understand something when their they're sa- their livelihood and paying their bills depends on them not understanding it. And so sometimes I feel like you, it almost gives you a, a freedom when you're a little bit outside. You know, the, the payroll that mm. you get a chance to, to ask questions that maybe tons other people, you know, it's the, uh, the price is too high if they mm. do. I, I talk to a lot of pastors who often feel very um, almost uh, stifled mm. in some of their questions for, for, that, for that very reason. Right. And so, yeah, even making everybody feel a little bit less alone, I think is good uh, across the board for sure.
0: Well, one thing I would say to encourage you, you've got to work on your uh, self-loathing. You call yourself too many wannabes or uh, those types of (laughs) things. You called yourself a a social justice wannabe, but I would say from your writing and your work, I'd argue the contrary. Um, You're doing brilliant work for the kingdom and you're brokering people to take action through your writing. Um, So so tell us a little bit more because you're involved in a lot of things. Tell us a little bit more about Help One Now.
1: Uh, Sure. Well, you know, I think I say the word wannabe because I work alongside of people that to me are the real heroes. And I just see myself as kind of like a little terrier that jogs alongside (laughs) the real heroes. (laughs) And so... Um, You know, with Help One Now, um, it's a a group of people, it's a very grassroots organization um, that works in developing nations, and so we, the primary thing that that we do through that organization is resource high-capacity local leaders. So rather than coming along and being, you know, the big Western, you know, you typically white saviors that come alongside and, you know, Flash their logo on everything, we've really decided to, you know, find high-capacity leaders who are indigenous to their area and support and resource um, them. And our job is really to stay in the background. And so whether we're in Haiti or we're in Ethiopia or in uh, the Dominican Republic or in Peru, um, you know, we have been working on uh, child poverty and on long-term development work, as well as uh, empowering women, um, building up the church, uh, fighting human trafficking I mean so all of these different uh, different areas and our favorite thing in the Hawaii world is if nobody knows our name mm. and uh, and if we can just continue to uh, to see the the people who are local really be the big, big heroes in in that story. And we just get to come alongside and celebrate and resource what they're doing. So that's been super uh, life-changing for me the last few years, um, participating in that and being a part of that community. Um, And I serve on the board there as well. And then I'm also on the board at um, a maternity home that's based um, in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince. And the, the story at Heartline is one of my favorite stories of the progression oftentimes that we go through when we're involved in justice work, where oftentimes we engage in justice work and we are in, um, you know, any, anything to do with, uh, you know, missionary work or, or global issues. And we don't know what we don't know. And we end up almost doing more damage. <laughs> and, you know, we're very well-meaning, but we're very dumb. And, you know, and I think that sometimes that's, that's what ends up happening with a lot of people's stories about as they're engaging in injustice work on a global scale is we don't know what we don't know. Um, and Heartline got started, um, and I'm not saying that necessarily about Heartline at all. I'm just more talking about the larger trend. Um, but Heartline initially started as an orphanage in Haiti. And after, you know, 20 years, they began to realize, you know what, orphanages are not fixing this. You know, we have this this endless, and, and oftentimes the, the, the children who were in the orphanages, not just theirs, but in almost every church who loves to have an orphanage that they support and they like to go down and paint the walls on for the youth mission trips, um, I wonder sometimes how many times you can paint the same wall. <laughs> but they, you know, really a lot of them were economic orphans right? It was because they, there was no community development. There, were no, there was no infrastructure. The better life was oftentimes to place your children and to abandon them and to put them into care because that would give them the best possible choice. Uh, we saw that a lot even in, in, uh, in Ethiopia um, of people, you know, even even uh, paying for children um, in order to, you know, have international adoption and that sort of thing. And so Heartline, after the earthquake happened in Haiti, um, the government fast-tracked getting all of the children out of um and into the families that had they had been placed with and so all of those children were placed immediately and flown to the United States where, or you know to the countries where they had been adopted into and so for the very first time they had an empty orphanage and they sat around and looked at each other and said do we reopen the orphanage and continue to put band-aids on this issue or do we do something completely different and they ended up doing this incredibly brave thing of taking a pivot and developing a maternity home instead. Mm. So these women went and trained as certified midwives. And now they service, I mean, you know, hundreds of women come through there where they receive, you know, prenatal care, deliveries, um, postnatal care, six, they are taught how to breastfeed, they're taught parenting courses, they are. And so their whole heart is keeping Haitian families intact. Mm that there would be no more need for any orphanages. And so that's the kind of work that I just get so excited about. I'm deeply passionate about maternal care um, worldwide. And so seeing, I think one of the most beautiful sights in my life has been when I'm there at that maternity center and I see a room full of Haitian mothers who are all all over the socioeconomic spectrum, nursing their babies, chatting, laughing, raising their children, empowered to be mothers. Um, Out of all of the births, that they have had at that maternity center over the years, there's only been one woman who felt the need to um, relinquish her child. And all the rest of those babies get to grow up in their families and in their culture and in their home. And to me, that is, there's nothing more beautiful than keeping families intact. Um, and it's a really revolutionary you know way to way to approach it that's looking more at the long game and so I'm really excited to be a part of that and to be contributing there and we're beginning this project now to take that model and make it so that other NGOs and ministries would be able to replicate it in other developing nations right now so we're really excited about that project too right now.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating work. Um, you can find more information about that on Sarah's website, com. Uh, there's links for both of those organizations she was speaking about. Um, so uh, before we let you go, what, what's next? What's, what's new? What's going on in your life right now? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, well, you know what? I just actually came back from my last trip for the spring, and so I've got a couple months off here for the summer. Um, with my children, which is nice. Um, but other than that, I mean, you know, just doing a lot of speaking and and teaching around. I uh, just turned in my third book manuscript, so that felt good. Awesome. Right now it's a disaster, um, so we'll <laughs> take a run at it and make it uh, hopefully something here pretty soon. The books um, will be out in March 2018. Um, the tentative title is Everyday Resurrection. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about how to, uh, or how, and uh, um, we can kind of live out this big, huge thing, this big, huge story of what sets us apart in our regular walking around lives.
0: For those listening, I tried so hard to see if Sarah would let me have a peek into the into the book. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll have to wait until I March...
1: spared you, really, at this point, Andy. It's wow. such a disaster right now. <laughs>
0: I promise with some of my writing, um, no, <laughs> um, well, this is, this has been a joy, uh, Sarah, thank you for, uh, your willingness to have this conversation about, I would say your exquisite writing and brilliant work. Um, I'm a huge fan and you have many followers within the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Um, you can find more information about Sarah at Bessie.com, including her blog and nonprofit work. Um, of course you can purchase out of sorts and Jesus feminist on Amazon, or is there a better place for people to buy it?
1: not at all honestly their local bookstore anywhere that they're happy to it doesn't doesn't matter to me they can get at their public library that's all as long as they're they're getting access to what they need that's good good as far as i'm concerned
0: Well, before we let you go, we need to spotlight one more of our sponsors today, CBF Dawnings. The meaning and value of Dawnings is different for individuals and communities. For churches, Dawnings is a biblical framework for local congregational life informed by the practices of Jesus. Practically, it offers a basic infrastructure for a congregation's life together. For individuals, Dawnings is a rhythm of daily and seasonal living that helps individuals orient their personal lives to God's dream for the world and God's mission in it. For CBF, Dawnings is a new way of relating to its partners, individuals, churches, and organizations. Dawnings encourages and enables shared vision and collaboration among these partners while informing CBF's initiatives for resourcing congregations. For everyone involved, Dawnings is a shared way of life that anticipates our future while honoring both our recent and ancient past. As a way of proceeding clearly, it helps to distinguish between Dawnings the idea, or simply Dawnings, and Dawnings the process. Visit cbfdawnings.org for more information or to submit an application for a retreat. As we go, we want to give a special thank you to the Center for Congregational Health and CBF Dawnings for sponsoring today's episode. Visit cbfchurchstarts.net for more information about CBF Church Start Initiative, along with blogs from our church starters from across the fellowship and around the United States.